This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 57, Yoga Deconstructed. For this episode, I sat down with Trina Altman. Trina is the creator of the programs Yoga Deconstructed and Pilates Deconstructed, which we'll talk about today. On top of her public, privates, and online classes and courses, Trina has presented at Kripalu, the Yoga Alliance Leadership Conference, and at YogaWorks, amongst others. She also created and taught a Pilates continuing education course for physical therapists and was part of the faculty for the Brain Longevity Conference at UCLA. Her work has been published in Yoga Journal, Yoga International, and Pilates Style Magazine, and her classes has been featured on Yoga International and Yoga Anytime. She also consulted for Equinox to help develop their signature program called Best Stretch Ever. And her book, Yoga Deconstructed, Transitioning from Rehabilitation Back into the Yoga Studio, is slated to be published by Handstring Publishing in the fall of 2020. As always, I really appreciate your support with this podcast. You can get access to even more content, exclusive episodes, tutorials, guided meditation, and so much more when you become a premium member. Know that you can make a big difference even with a small donation to help me cover production costs to allow me to continue this podcast. And if you'd like to support me in this, please visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat and become a member. And as a thank you, not only do you get access to all the past content, you'll get access to new exclusive content every month. Okay, ready? Let's get to our episode of today with Trina. Hi, Trina. Hey, Erica. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So Trina, for listeners that don't know you very well, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your yoga Pilates journey? Yes. Um, you know, I would say that I am an integrator or a synthesizer. So I really like to um, pull in inspiration from exercise science and other movement modalities like Feldenkrais or FRC or Pilates, um, strength and conditioning, Mabon Bartinieff, um, and bring it back to my either yoga students or Pilates students. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that it's uh, you know, while a strict method can be nice for a while, that it, it has its limitations, especially if the goal is just to, you know, problem solve and, and help your students um, with specific things. And um, and then, of course, with that goes being a rule breaker. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm not good with rules, um, but I think where that's helped me is it I'm good at giving people permission um, to sort of break out of the box of rules that they've been given that might not be working for them so well Mm -hmm. anymore um, that they were originally taught um, or might not be, you know, serving their students' bodies very well. And um, uh, I'm really creative. So I just, I enjoy coming up with um, like interesting variations of poses and movements and um, new ways of using traditional props uh, as well as bringing in like non-traditional props into mm-hmm. um, my teaching and just giving people permission to ask questions and to play. Uh, I think a lot of, you know, when we kind of stick with one strict modality, again, it goes back to like, these are the rules. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is how we do it. Um, <clears throat> don't ask me too many questions, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, like just do the thing because I told you to do the thing. Uh, and I, I think, you know, that doesn't necessarily mesh well with number one, you know, how we learn and number two with uh, helping people. Uh, so, so yeah, I think giving people permission to um, be more of a, a co-creator in what's happening as opposed to uh, like an empty vessel and mm-hmm. the, it's just being filled up with information. That's yeah. amazing. And you created Yoga Deconstructed and Pilates Deconstructed. Can you explain us what those are and why you chose to put it together into that kind of program? Yeah. So um, again, you know, I I like being able to give people permission to ask questions and to play um, because that's how we learn best, I think. And, um, and 
I'm pretty good at handling the cognitive dissonance um, when there's, you know, lots of contradictory information coming from relevant sources. And so if I were to just say what I do is yoga or to just say what I do is Pilates, even, you know, because that is the, you know, what I'm trained in, but I'm also, you know, studied and, and trained in other things, then it's, uh, <clears throat> I guess, not giving the consumer the full story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in order to give them the full story, you know, it, it needs to be called something beyond just yoga or beyond just Pilates. That's got a word that describes, um, a little bit of what I do, you know, which is, I love to deconstruct movement. Um, and then of course having a description that's <clears throat> a little more in depth of like, you know, if you come to my yoga deconstructed class at Equinox, um, it's going to be a combination of yoga, preparatory exercises, somatic movements, um, you know, we, uh, yoga poses, um, but it's not like a traditional yoga class. And then of course the same thing with Pilates, like don't come to my Pilates class expecting to do classical Pilates, all the exercises that you know that you've done a million times in the very same order that Joseph did them, or you will be very disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Can you explain for people that don't know, um, what is somatic movement? Yes. So, um, so my favorite book that I like to refer people to is by Martha Eddy. And, um, because I'm at home while we're doing this, I'm going to pull it out just so I don't screw up what the, (laughs) the name of it is. Good. Oh, here it is. So it's called mindful movement, the evolution of the somatic arts and conscious action. And what I love about this book is, um, there's this diagram in Mm. the very front and it's a big circle with, uh, almost like if you were going to play archery, you know, and then there's circles within the circles. And then there's all these people and lines going to the different people. So at the very center of the circle, you know, you've got like Rudolph Laban. Um, and then there's a line, you know, from, from him going to Ermgard Barteniev. But then, you know, there's a line from Ermgard going to Martha Eddy, who wrote this book. But you could also start in the center of the circle with um, Ida Rolf because that's also considered somatic arts. And then, you know, there's lines going to Judith Aston from Aston Patterning. Um, you could start with, um, you know, Emily Conrad, who's from Continuum. And then there's a line going to Susan Harper. Uh, so you see like all the interconnectedness of everything and how, um, you know, while there might be some somatic modalities that are more popular and well-known than others. There Can you give are, an example? Um, yeah, so probably like Alexander Technique, Feldenkrais, um, you know, e- even, um, you know, if we're talking in the body work space of somatics, Rolfing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But then, of course, there's also like Dr. Milton Traeger. And so, it, you know, when, it, when I'm speaking in terms of myself, I'm obviously speaking in terms of, of movement somatics rather than the body work somatics. Um, but, uh, you know, there's also like Bonnie Baybridge Cohen is on this, um, you know, Spectrum. diagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like, she actually learned from Ermgard Barteniev, who learned from Rudolf Laban. Um, so it's, I just think it's really fascinating. And, and then like, if I always, let's see, where's, <clears throat> oh yeah. So, um, Moshe Feldenkrais, you know, Thomas, uh, Hannah was a student of his. And if you, don't want to buy this book that's kind of like the broad picture of all the different somatics that are out there, um, which, you know, it's, it's like a how, what, and why of somatic education from every perspective. I would start with, um, uh, this was a book my mother gave me probably 20 years ago, and it's just called Somatics. Mm. And it's by Thomas Hanna. <clears throat> and he was a, um, a student of Moshe Feldenkrais. And, um, Yeah. So, you know, somatic movement is other people might also, sorry, I have this in front of me. So I'm like naming all the people, Lulu Swigard, um, you know, was a student of Mabel Todd and uh, Mabel Todd has a really famous well-known book that I can't think of the name of right now. Well, people Um, can go on and dig into all these people if they want to know more about it. 
Eric Franklin, who studied with, you know, Irene Dowd. I studied a little bit with Irene Dowd. So yeah, it's kind of endless. Uh Um, (laughs) You can, just like with any other movement modalities, you can go super deep dive in in one method um, uh, or you can, you know, sort of blend and and study multiple Mm -hmm. methods. the, The methods that I've studied are, uh, Feldenkrais. I am not a Feldenkrais certified practitioner. I did not do the, it's a four-year program that costs around 30 or $40,000. Um, something like that. It's very, very, I, yeah. I could be, I'm bad with numbers, but it's when I saw the, the number, I saw, I got some sticker shock. Um, but I, I've taken um, once a week Feldenkrais awareness through movement classes for about uh, four years. And, um, and then I also took weekly classes where we did, um, quite a lot of the Laban, um, Bartenieff types of somatic mm. movements. So those are the two that I tend to pull from when mm. I, um, insert those sequences into my yoga or Pilates classes. Okay. So you mentioned that you're creative. You like to think outside the box. Is there another reason? Like, do you come from an injury or did you find that there was like a misunderstanding around the physical practice or there was something missing? Did you try to address a problem creating that program or it was just out of pure curiosity and <laughs> yeah, no, love absolutely. for movement? Um, yeah, so I am an eternal questioner and an eternal learner uh-huh. and um, I don't, um, I'm a why girl and, and so I'm always going to know why, like, mm. why are we doing this? You know, what, how is this going to help us? How is this going to help our students? You know, why would you choose to do it or not do it? And, um, uh, yeah, I've, I've always, I think I was just kind of raised also to question everything. Like growing up, I, I went to, um, uh, Catholic school and Episcopal school, but I was raised Jewish. So I had a bat mitzvah and, you know, I'd go to Catholic school and, and in religion class, I was taught those things. And then I would go to Hebrew school and I was taught in Sunday school at the something temple. Different. The yeah. And then I went to Episcopal school and, and I was taught something different and everyone completely, you know, insisted that their way was the right way and the only way. Mm-hmm. So from a very young age, I just never bought into any. <laughs> so whenever I see sort of that like um group think um anything that like sniffs of you know an MLM or a you know some sort of like guru led um cult I run as fast as I can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I love to learn, but if the person I'm learning from insists their way is the only way, then yeah, I, I always take that That's as a That's a sign spot. for you, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so when I started, I, I did my 200-hour yoga training and I absolutely loved it. Um, and then I did my 300 hour and then while I was actually started my 300 while I was in my 200, um, while I was finishing up my 300, I started the Pilates training. Um, and yeah, which each, with each new training and, um, teaching experience that I would have, I would begin to question things that I had already learned mm-hmm. and, um, and, and not in a bad way. You know, I think like we all come from different perspectives and we all specialize in, in different things, but, um, yeah, I, I'm hypermobile. And so, you know, when I did my yoga teacher training, it was in 2007. And I think from probably like 2007 to 2014, people were mostly, you know, on the trend slash train of yoga is all you need. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I had always done lots of different types of movement growing up as a kid, but because I'm such a learner and a studier and a nerd, I was like, okay, I'm going to go all in and learn this thing that I'm doing right now, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, you know, without having had any, um, education around exercise science or biomechanics or kinesiology. And so when I entered my Pilates training, I got a lot of, of, information around exercise science, biomechanics, and kinesiology. And so it made me, you know, have a very different um, frame of reference for what um, I had learned about yoga asana. And so that would have been in like 2009. Um, 
Yeah. And then of course, Pilates has its own rules. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and there are as many kinds of Pilates, uh, styles of Pilates as there are yoga. Most people don't know that, but it's mm-hmm. true. And so, you know, if you take one style of Pilates, the rules are going to be completely different than another style. Mm-hmm. And some are very, you know, more sort of biomechanics, kinesiopathological, um, you know, others are, are more just sort of classical old school. So, um, you know, the Pilates world is, is changing a lot at, well, not classical, but contemporary as exercise science changes. So mm-hmm. things that I learned, you know, in 2009 in my Pilates training of like, you know, the transversus being like the be all end all and the multifidus and, you know, there was no talk of pain science or biotensegrity or, um, you know, yeah, like even just motor learning stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's just a never ending process. And I think I figured if I call what I do something beyond a name of what people expect, it's going to give me permission to continue. I don't have a, like a manual with, um, you know, exercises and, uh, cues that are written in stone that Mm -hmm. will be taught year Mm -hmm. after year. And people will think that like, that is the way Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can just be a continuing education provider and people can go do their, you know, training in the way. And then when the way isn't working so well, then they can come and learn more. Do you think there's something particular about classical yoga or classical Pilates that puts us at risk for injury, whether we are hypermobile like you or not? Um, well, I think, um, no more so than any, um, other sport, Mm -hmm. right. Because, you know, anything that's, um, like specific, meaning you're doing something that's the same over and over again, there's the few like random snowflake people that are super lucky and genetically gifted that can, you know, like, be a runner their entire life and run on concrete and never get injured and never have mm-hmm. pain. But I would say, you know, like most people, um, yeah, if they do the same thing over and over and over again, the repetition or certain, is the issue. Yeah, amount of time, yeah, the, the body starts to break down. And so, you know, I think it maybe was less obvious with things like say yoga and Pilates because they're more in the mindful movement category. They're more low load. But activity. still, when you think of a vinyasa class, there's a <clears throat> lot of repetition. If you do it five yeah. times a week, then it's well, yeah. a lot of and stress. It's like, if you're, yeah, exactly. So, and it's body weight and it's um, all pushing, um, you know, and, and Pilates, like say, if you're only doing If you're only doing mat, if you're doing equipment-based Pilates, you know, it's, you know, you're, it's might not, you might not ever get injured or it might take a long time. Um, but mat-based Pilates, again, it's, it's body weight activity and, and both modalities, pretty much all of the repertoire or, you know, protocols, whatever you want to call it, you know, sequencing is you do this in the sagittal plane. And then you do this in the coronal plane and then you do this in the transverse plane and nothing is mixed together, Yeah, which isn't how life happens. Yeah. We're uh, going to so talk about those two things separately because I want to dig in a little bit more, but yeah. you talked about the pushing aspect. So how can we bring more pulling or just more variability in general in our yoga practice or even in our everyday movement patterns? And what would be the goal other than just balancing? Is there another reason why the pulling would be really useful to add or other things that I'm not thinking of right now? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I, I always think of movement, um, somewhat like food and, you know, I know this analogy has been, you know, referenced many, many times, but, you know, just like you need a variety of movement nutrients, um, you need a variety of food nutrients. So even if you're, um, you know, eating something super healthy, like, carrots. If you only eat carrots, you'll turn orange, <laughs> right? Like it just yeah. happens. Your fingers will turn orange. Um, you know, or if you, yeah, you'll, you'll have nutrient deficiencies. Like it's, it's just how it goes. And it's the same thing, um, with movement. So, or, or not moving. So, you know, you're just as likely to get quote unquote injured and have pain, from never moving at all. Mm -hmm. Like the only thing you do is, you know, lie in your bed at night, sit at your kitchen table and eat, sit at your desk at work, come back home, sit at your kitchen table and eat, sit on the couch, watch TV at night, and then lie down in your bed. That's just as likely to have, you know, 
feel you're just as likely to have pain and, and mm-hmm. be injured as somebody who does say an Ashtanga practice, you know, seven days a week, two hours a day, because again, they're totally different, but it's the body, you know, our body needs multiple loads in multiple ranges of motion. Um, you know, and there are people who, you know, study this in a way more than I do, but even things that we're just discovering, like, I think exercise just became a thing mm-hmm. in the 1970s. <laughs> you know, so it's like, I was born in 1972. Before that, there was no, like, people might've played tennis or people might've played play. Golf, okay. yeah, 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 or golf or ping pong, um, you know, or sports, but there was no like, oh, I don't play a sport. So, you know, the first thing that really happened was like the YMCA in the 1970s, and people were like, oh, we need to do jumping jacks and push ups. And, mm-hmm. you know, JFK issued the like, oh, we need to have PE class in school. Um, so then it wasn't really, I think those ideas were just constructed as like, oh, well, this is simple and anyone can do it. So let's do push-ups, jumping jacks, mm-hmm. sit-ups, and, you know, maybe pull-ups. If somebody has a, a pull-up bar, uh, <laughs> kind of like, you know, when uh, with, with food, you know, if you like, you're like, oh, I only have access to potatoes, rice, and mac and cheese <laughs> in a box, you know, and you're like, mm-hmm. that will keep me alive. I won't die of hunger but I'm probably not, you know, long-term going to fare so well. So I, I think because it's such a young industry, um, the, the movement and exercise industry, um, it's just taken us time to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of through trial and error of figuring what works and, and what doesn't work. Yeah. So you mentioned we can play with load. We can play with the range of motion. We can play with direction of motion or direction of movement. Yes. What else can we think of? Um, yes. So range of motion, load, open chain movements, closed chain movements, partially closed chain kinetic movements, mm-hmm. uh, orientation to gravity. Um, and then of course, you know, intensity, tempo, um, you know, it, so many it goes so many things. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which I think makes it really, really fun. It, it's totally Oh yeah. I mean, our, we, our muscles move because our brain is basically telling the muscles to, you know, it's like, I don't, I think people think, oh, there's, you know, not so much anymore. There's the mind and the body. And like, when you're exercising, you're not using your brain. And when you're using your brain, you know, to, to read and learn things, it's, you know, it's a disembodied thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, a trend that I see now with all of the, um, movement towards, um, learning about the brain and how it relates to movement and vision is, is really exciting because, uh, I mean, I'm sure you feel this way too. Like, uh, I mean, I was, you know, I was raised like you go, you go to school, you get straight A's. If you can go to the Ivy league school, you do, which I did, you get out, you get a white collar job that really challenges your brain. <laughs> You work your way up the ranks and then you retire. And, you know, so the idea of like, I mean, this didn't exist as a career, you know, I graduated college in 94. Um, And then when it did, I was like, oh, well, you know, it's not going to be academically rigorous enough for me, but it's actually not the case at all. Like you can be super academically (laughs) rigorous about how you go about teaching movement and learning movement um, and uh, be an educator, you know, in the same way that like a professor with a PhD would be an educator, but just in a different subject. Mm -hmm. So as a yoga teacher or a Pilates teacher, we can play with all those aspects of movement we just mentioned to bring a little bit more variability and that will help us prevent injuries in our students. But is there other things we could do without, um, within our scope of practice to help prevent those injuries, whether it's a group class or one-on-one sessions? Yeah, well... Or is that enough? Um, I, um, I always learn best in a one-on-one situation. So I've been taking private lessons um, since I started as a teacher. So probably, I guess, all the way back to 2008, 
um, when I finished my 200 hour and I, I started the Pilates training and I would either, it was either twice weekly, um, for many, many years. Um, and sometimes once weekly because, um, you know, just like there's some confusion in the world around like, oh, you know, do this diet. This diet works for everyone, mm-hmm. you know, which we all know, like if you're old, as old as I am, right. And you see keto right now, you're like, oh yeah, like Atkins got it, you know, <laughs> been there, done that, you yeah. know, nothing against it, either of those two things. But I think what it really comes down to is certain people, their body is going to thrive with that type of diet and other people's bodies are going to thrive with the antithesis of that diet that's Mm -hmm. maybe more grain and veggie based and it's individual and we're always trying to do you know I call a group class like going to get your teeth cleaned at the dentist with 25 other people (laughs) right I mean it's like that's um and in Pilates uh I mean it's changing now but um up until at least the last few years you were not allowed to take Pilates equipment classes until you had taken privates Mm. first that would be and, so good in yoga. Yes, <laughs> oh it God. would. Um, well, and partly what happened is is people would realize for the first time in their lives the benefit of individualized, customized, you know, personalized approach to movement. And so even when they didn't have to keep taking the privates, they continue to take the privates because, um, you know, of what they're learning and, and how they're progressing and, and, or avoiding, um, pain or injury. And so, um, I think that, you know, I've been teaching privates for, uh, I guess since about 2008. Yeah. So, you know, maybe like 12 years and some of my clients I've had, you know, for eight years, twice a week, you know, and it's just, um, unless you've experienced taking private lessons or you've experienced teaching them, I think it's very difficult to explain, you know, just like with movement, it's, it's difficult to explain, but when you get injured and you go to physical therapy, uh, there's usually two models. I experienced both of them. One is what I call the factory physical therapy model. That was my first exposure, which is basically like a group class, right? You go and there's like 12 beds set up there's one physical therapist and there's like six aides, you know, and there's like the icing station and the, um, E-STEM station and the like heating pad station. And then there's, you know, where the physical therapist, you know, comes to you on the bed and like gives you a little bit of rub finger stuff for 10 minutes station. And then (laughs) there's the station where you go and there's like a 17 year old kid who was handed a piece of paper with three exercises on it, tells you to do the exercises and then looks at their phone while you're doing them and doesn't watch you to see if you're doing them right. Um, so that's like experience a of physical therapy. And then there's experience B of physical therapy, which is usually where you pay completely out of pocket, um, or it's out of network. You get an entire hour or an hour and 15 minutes with the physical therapist and you actually learn stuff and get better. (laughs) And I think that same analogy is, um, applicable to the movement space. So, you know, you can take hit classes and kettlebell classes, um, until you die, you're never going to learn the same thing that you would learn by working one-on-one with mm-hmm. uh, a strength and conditioning coach or a personal trainer. Mm-hmm. And same thing with yoga or Pilates or any other, you know, movement modality. If we do have pain in yoga and Pilates or in an activity we do regularly in life, where do we start? Like, what do we look at first or what are the different like cues or clues in our bodies that we can start to be aware of? Um, well, yeah, I think if you, I always say, if you have pain, I've got a lot of people I can recommend to you. (laughs) You know, I mean, I was raised Jewish and, and Jewish culture is like, if something hurts or you're sick, the first thing you do is go to the doctor, you know, <laughs> the doctor. No. Um, and then the second thing you do is get a second opinion and sometimes a third opinion yeah. because 
my culture is like, don't, you know, always ask why, um, don't trust what somebody says just cause they said it. Mm-hmm. Like, is there any research to back it up? Do other people also concur? So, so yeah, like as movement teachers, um, you know, I work with lots of people who have, um, injuries or limitations, but after they've, you know, gotten out of the acute pain phase working with their physical therapist and they're ready to, you know, start moving and start loading. Because when you're in the acute pain phase, like all you can do is lie on the bed with the e-stim because, you know, everything hurts everywhere and you have no proprioception. Mm. Um, I mean, there's also, then there's the chronic pain stage where people, um, don't transition out of the acute pain stage because they don't go to physical therapy or they don't go to a good physical therapist or they do go to a good physical therapist um, and get better. And then they never do their homework ever again and sit on their couch and wonder why they're in pain again. Um, (laughs) So um, let's see. Uh, Wait, I forgot. I lost my train of thought. Um, I was asking what kind of cues can we look into our bodies to know... Yeah. So there Where, are no, you know, we well, yeah. Oh yeah. I thought you meant Do we like just cute. go directly to someone else? Or <laughs> my question was basically, you know, what can you start to look at or question in your body when you feel there's discomfort? It doesn't have to be like this really acute yeah. injury, but, oh, I'm today in Chaturanga. There's a little tweak in my shoulder or today in this, right. there's a little tweak in my whatever. Like, what do we look for? Yeah. So I think, uh, sharpshooting pain is bad. Um, (laughs) numbness and tingling, definitely something to pay attention to. Um, if you're just sore because you worked out, like, you know, say you went on a three hour hike and you usually go on like a, you know, 45 minute walk and, you know, like your feet and your calves and shins are kind of sore. Like that's just muscle soreness, no big deal. Um, but you know, pain is a biopsychosocial event and, um, I do. I mean, again, like one of the other, you know, I've been, I did about, you know, 23 years, uh, 20 to 25 years of psychotherapy and, um, a good eight of those years were the somatic psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of times we have pain and uh, I mean, many, many times we have pain and, and there's no tissue damage. Um, a lot of times we have, you know, we walk, out the the doctor's office with the MRI with the thing that says, you know, you have five herniated discs and no pain, you know, you know, so Mm -hmm. the the correlation is very low. So I was really grateful to my physical therapist um, because he actually lent me the book called Explain Pain, you know, eight years ago in 2012. Um, And so I educate my clients and, you know, teachers when I'm doing continuing ed uh, about pain science. But um, yeah, I, I think there's, you know, everyone has a different pain tolerance mm-hmm. as well. So there are people who anytime they do a stretch, they interpret that sensation as pain. And there are people who anytime they do a stretch, um, interpret that sensation as pleasure. Mm. <laughs> and then it's the opposite. There are people who every time they do strength training or cardiovascular exercise and have sensation, they interpret it as pain. And there are other people who interpret it as pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's, I wish I had some things that'd be like, well, if you're feeling X, Y, and Z, that's this. And if you're feeling A, B, and C, it's that because it's just not, it's really complicated. You know, like you could wake up one morning um, with pain someone you're wearing your body and, you know, be like, I have no idea why this happens. And then you go to the psychotherapist or the biopsychosocial informed physical therapist and they say, well, what's been going on in your life? And you're like, well, I've been a little bit sad because my cat died three days ago. And they're like, well, then of course your shoulder hurts, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, if you didn't like go hard doing something physical with your shoulder and your shoulder was fine. And now all of a sudden out of the blue, your shoulder hurt when you woke out of bed. Like, yeah, maybe you slept on it wrong, but your cat just died. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you can look at the quality of your movement, but there's also all sorts of other things that will influence the way you feel in movement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So people can look 
how repetitive their movement are. Like as you were mentioning, they can look at those other aspects. And then if you know they feel like they're focused on one aspect more than the other, they could bring some balance in. But for listeners that love the repetition in yoga, they love that flow state it puts them in, or they love the flexibility aspect, like they crave to go just deeper and deeper. How can they continue to improve their flexibility, but at the same time, bring in more stability or strength without sacrificing, you know, one or the other and continue what they love, but keep themselves safe? Right. I mean, the simple answer is cross training. Mm. So there's two options. Option A, you know, I've always taught my yoga classes at a gym. So I don't have to toe the line of yoga is all you need. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, welcome to my yoga class. This is something that falls in the regeneration category. Um, You know, you take my class after you've done the cardio hit class or Zumba downstairs and you've lifted your weights for strength training. And then we do some regeneration. Um, Or, you know, if somebody doesn't like to do those other things or they don't want to belong to the gym, Um, you know, that's why I teach my classes the way I do. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my class involves, you you know, external load because I'll bring stretchy bands. Um, the studios where I teach, I'll have little mini dumbbells, weighted balls. Um, you know, we'll use cork bricks. Uh, I I explained to them very clearly that this is not strength training. (laughs) You know, like if you want to strength train, you're going to need more load than a cork brick or a stretchy band. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a great place to start. And um, yeah, so I think you you have those two options. You can either choose to take a yoga class that's more hybridized and, you know, you know, like, not a single modality. So say, you know, you love your yin class and that's the only yoga you do. Like, great. But then you also need to strength train and get some cardiovascular exercise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's also way more categories beyond those two. That's kind of like the bare minimum, but, you know, other categories would be like motor development, coordination, um, you know, jumping skills, you know, it's, Mm. it's endless, all the skills, but like, bare, bare minimum, I think just to be a human is, you know, (laughs) is, uh, you know, some cardiovascular exercise, some, some strength training, um, exercise and, uh, of course, like mobility. Mm -hmm. And if you're only going to do the, um, and then, and then there's flexibility, which would be more like just passive stretching. So say restorative or Mm -hmm. yin or, or even like just a super stretchy Ashtanga class. I mean, Ashtanga has strength, but it's only pushing in chaturanga and arm balances. The rest of it is just like grab a body part and, you know, (laughs) and come into a passive stretch. And if it's not working, grab harder and pull harder. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so yeah. And I think if we can just clearly explain that to people, um, it doesn't, I don't think it really matters until they get injured or at least like that's how most people work that's yeah. how I, you know you're going to find the thing you love to do that has the sensations that make you feel good and you're going to do it that over you and over again. with pleasure <laughs> and yes exactly until you're in pain then you're going to be in pain you're going to freak out uh you're not going to want to give up doing that thing so you'll keep doing it you'll be in more pain and then finally you'll be in so much pain that uh you won't you have a choice yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about that there's no one size fits all in movement. And there's one thing you teach about and I really love and I also integrated it in my class over the years is regression and progressions. Yeah. So can you explain what those are, how they're useful and giving an example for people to understand what we're talking about? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, like a, a really simple, you know, so the factors I teach, um, a course called creativity meets science immersion. And then I have a book coming out for handspring, um, in the fall of this year. And I go into to detail about all of this and both of those scenarios. Um, but there are certain factors that you can always go to, to regress or progress a movement or a pose. And I think um, within the teacher yoga teacher training realm, um, we're not taught that. We're Mm -hmm. taught like, you know, here's extended side angle pose. If the person can't reach the floor, put a block under their hands, you know, (laughs) and that's it. Um, 
versus like um, thinking about regressions in terms of, of load. So with body weight movement, um, you don't really have a lot of options because your body weight's your body weight, but you can work with levers. So for example, if it's too challenging upper body strength wise to do a regular plank, you would put your knees down and do a kneeling plank. So you're making your leg a short lever. lever. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, uh, another example would be, um, shortening the lever, but also like, uh, changing the, the relationship to gravity. So say if you are in a regular side plank with your hand on the floor and then, you know, your feet are stacked and matching outer edge of the bottom foot, um, you have two bases of support. So you could create three bases of support, um, by, you know, splitting your feet and having, you know, one foot forwards and one foot backwards, as opposed to that, like super straight line. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you wanted to decrease the lever in the side plank, just like with a regular plank, um, you could have one knee on the ground. Um, you know, you could put your forearm on the ground instead of your hand on the ground, and that would decrease the lever at the elbow joint instead of the knee joint. And a lot of times they aren't, um, so they're not as cut and dry as I explained. So when I teach this in my courses, I'll say, okay, well, it's going to make it easier in this way, but it's going to actually make it harder in another way. So mm-hmm. if you've ever done, you know, like a side plank um, on your forearm or a regular plank on your forearms, it's a shortened lever. So you're like, oh, this has got to be easier. It's a decreased load. But actually, you know, yeah, if you have, you know, if it hurts your wrists, um, that's a great regression, but you're going to work your core a lot harder, um, doing the forearm version than you would doing it up on your hands because your, your relationship to the floor is lower down. So what you think is a regression is not a regression for everybody, depending on what they're struggling with. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And then, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, please. Well, and I was going to say, you know, like a, a good way to think about it. I took a, a training uh, called fascial fitness with Dr. Robert Schleit back in like 2012. And he said, you know, if you think about two big categories, there's the, there's the people who have Viking fascia. And then there's the people who have like the temple dancer fascia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if I, I do this one a lot in my, um, different continuing education workshops is I'll have everybody lie on the floor with their arms overhead and then reach one leg up to the ceiling, which is warrior three on your back. And then I'll have everyone come up to stand and, um, do warrior three, um, either, you know, just regular or with both their hands on the wall. And the Vikings always say that the lying down version is harder Mm. And the temple dancer fascia people always say that the lying down on their back one is easier, uh, easier. Yes. And so it's the same shape, same exact shape, but different orientation to gravity. And then two people with different types of connective tissue. So one person's easy is another person's hard, Mm -hmm. you know, without even like, that's just straight up genetics for the most part. Like most of us, know that, you know, you remember back to being a kid and, um, you know, for a certain period of time, like we're all flexible and then it starts to go away for some people and others, it doesn't. And that's, you know, I, I, there's, it's nature and nurture, but I think it's, it's, it's mostly, you know, it's Mm -hmm. it's a lot of genetics. (laughs) So we talked about changing the lever, changing the load, changing the orientation to gravity, closing the chain, opening the chain, that kind of thing. So how can people or students in in the midst of a class, if what is happening is not quite working for them and they want to do a modification and oftentimes teachers will give like one option, but they don't have Mm -hmm. time to give you like all the possibility that exists in the world for all the bodies. So how can students think of those aspects and then modify for themselves as they need? Well, there's a couple ways. One, you can study everything like you and I have for the last 13 years and make it your life's work. Or two, you can take a private session Mm. with either a movement educator or a physical therapist. So, you know, I always say, if you're going to take a group class, you need to know what you can do, what you can't do what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And that those four things will change um, throughout your life and also from day to day. 
The only way to know those four things is to work with somebody one-on-one and learn. That's a great tip. Go to a teacher, figure out those four things, and then go to class and you'll have so much more. that's what I did. Yeah. You know, I mean, I didn't take any group classes for like four years because I was in pain and I was injured and I was spending all that time learning those four things. And then towards the end of the four years, I was little by little able to start going back into group classes, but I didn't need the teacher for modification because I already knew like, oh, we're doing X, you know, like I'm going to do it this way because that's my physical therapy homework, or that's the thing I was working on in my session with it's my just more appropriate for my body at this time mm-hmm. instructor. Yeah. Um, and so Uh, it's also like, um, you know, I think, you know, and I I go back to this again and again, but um, the whole, you know, just like the physical therapy system is broken and physical therapists talk about that all the time. um, The yoga and fitness industry is kind of broken as well in the sense that it, it works as a one size fits all. And we know that we're not one size fits all. So until um, the, the market and the culture um, understands that, you know, just because you look in an anatomy book and every artistic rendering of, a you know, person that's male looks the same and a person that's female looks the same. I mean, you you would think that would be obvious. Like you don't look at people on the outside and they all look the same and we don't look the same on the inside, Mm. but yet we're treating it that way. And I love group classes for social connection uh, for just so many reasons. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I do think when it comes to learning about, um, what, those four things, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, what you can do and what you can't do and how they change over time. Um, it's, it's no different than, I mean, I remember I struggled with math as a kid and, you know, it didn't matter how many different ways the algebra teacher taught the algebra. I needed a tutor. I had to have a tutor where I could say like, no, I have a question you know, and it was like an hour long tutoring session with me asking probably 30 questions in that mm-hmm. hour mm-hmm. and her, you know, so it's, yeah, we, we all learn in different ways. And, and I really am just, I also think it's not sustainable to be a yoga teacher unless you teach privates or you have other income from other sources mm-hmm. um, or because, you know, teaching 25 group classes a week um, you know, yeah, it's, it's just not a sustainable, um, financially or, or mentally or physically sustainable yeah. career choice. No. Um, and it's boring, you know, like you want, or at least for me, the reason why I've always loved what I do is because I love problem solving. I love analytical thinking. I love really helping people, mm-hmm. not like just at the end of class where they're like, oh my God, Being I feel a parrot. So yeah. I feel relaxed. Like, that's great. But I want to like really help you and, you know, teach you and, you know, to, to be a little more, you know, self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as a teacher, how can we look at our cues and their usefulness or if, you know, effectiveness in a group class, if we are teaching group classes? Right. You can't. Again, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, you, you, you can't. Uh, that is why you have to teach privates because in a private session, um, you will give a cue and you will watch what they do and they will either understand it or they won't. Um, or they'll think they understand it and they don't. So if they don't understand it, they'll ask you a question and that's awesome because then you get to give them a different cue or you get to give them a, like a tap somewhere, or you give them a prop that's going to give them kinesthetic feedback that will help them to understand. Um, that's the first scenario. Second scenario would be, they think they understand your cue and they're doing something that's not what you want them to do. (laughs) And so then you're like, Oh, okay, hold on a second. So I'm going to do a quick little demo. This is what you're doing. And this is what I want you to um, do instead. Let's try it again. Um, so yeah, I mean, a group class is a group class. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we all, like some of us are auditory learners, some yeah. are visual. I mean, we're all a combination. Some of us respond to imagery cues. Some of us respond to muscle cues. Like if you got 
a doctor in the class, then muscles cues are probably going to work a lot better than an imagery cue. Mm -hmm. Um, Where somebody else who doesn't know a single muscle name is not going to have a clue what you're talking about. And that is the problem of a group class. Yeah. So (laughs) imagery clue, just for people you're talking about like, open your heart or that kind of thing that you can't (laughs) actually physically do. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, because, um, yeah, it's, it's really, you know, and there's research showing, um, there's tons of research showing that imagery cues are, you know, amazing and blah, blah, blah. And then, but it, it really depends. You can find research, you know, that shows that other types of cues are. For some people, they're going to get like hung up on, like, I don't understand how to actually do that. That's me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. You know, I was like, you know, they're. Widen uh, your wings or. <laughs> you're like, yeah, spread your, spread your collarbones. I was like, okay, I have bones. Bones don't move from my brain telling the bone to move. So how do I, and also like spreading them. I've never seen my collarbones go from like here to here. (laughs) Because I don't even know that my collarbones are part of my shoulder girdle. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. Um, Unless you do know that. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, they're also referring to my shoulders because my collarbones are part of the, you know, the shoulder complex. So yeah, it's, it's really it's, um, it's tricky. I think the, what's nice about, um, you know, teaching a group class that's really, I mean, you can hurt yourself doing anything. Don't get me wrong, but it's less important that you do something, um, in a specific way, um, with a a low load, say gentle yoga class than it is if, um, you know, you're playing tennis or, Mm. you know, you're taking a hit class. Um, it's just, you know, the forces of, you know, jumping, doing burpees, you know, versus the force of, um, going from plank to down dog, you know, it's the impact is different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have one last question before we wrap it up. You mentioned that there's no right way to do something. Do you think there's really a wrong way to do things as well? Or is it all, it depends all the time? (laughs) It depends um, all the time because I think what's most important is to consider what your goal is. So like if your goal is to just have like a relaxing, joyful movement experience, um, then I don't think being specific with um, details is really the goal. And you useful know? of that moment, yeah. And useful, yeah. Um, if your um, goal is to learn a specific skill, like, you know, whether it's an older client who can no longer get up and down off the chair without putting their hands on their thighs and using their arm strength in addition to their lower body strength, mm-hmm. then like, yeah, it's really important that we start to, um, you know, build you up strength wise so that because over time it's just really not ideal to have to use your arms on this armchair Mm -hmm. you know to get out of your chair um I mean it's our body always finds a workaround and and but you know it's it would be like if somebody said you know well you can eat ice cream for the rest of your life and (laughs) you know you you might be okay but it's probably not the best idea (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I do really believe in specificity, uh, individualization, Mm -hmm. um, as far as determining like, uh, cause even from person to person, I mean, I just worked with, um, you know, we're in the middle of the coronavirus. So my, all my regular in-person clients working with on zoom and, um, you know, I have a, a, a morning client who has internal rotation in her hips until the cows come home, like endless internal rotation. And then I have a client in the afternoon who's the complete opposite and just like so much external rotation, but can barely get to just parallel. Um, and so I'm going to teach them in different ways and have different expectations of them. Um, I'm going to bias what I choose to, you know, do with them in their session based on that, that knowledge, um, yeah. And, and so I think, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it really depends. <laughs> so as a mover, you can consider those four, four questions we talked about. So the things you can do or should do and not. And what are what is your goal? What are you trying to actually accomplish? And as a teacher, yeah. you can also think about that, where you can think about what am I trying to teach skill-wise skill and why. Yes, yes, And exactly. then from there, that gives you a lot of info on how to sequence, what to, what to do next, what's, you know, how to build it up basically. Exactly. Yeah. So when I teach a group, um, yoga deconstructed class, um, and we go over this in the last workshop of the immersion, we actually, as a group, all create sequences together and then try them out and see how they feel. But the first part of the class is either, um, a somatic sequence. So say like some Hannah somatics or Le, Le Bon Bartenia fundamentals or Feldenkrais, which is mapping directions of movement in a slow, gentle, relaxed way mm-hmm. for later on when we do those same directions of movement at those joints in more of a, a cognitive way. So it would be referred to as like preparatory exercise or mm-hmm. Um, I, d- I don't use the word corrective exercise anymore um, just because it's it's nocebic language. It implies you need to correct something as you're, opposed to... You're doing to, it wrong, yeah. You just need to prepare yourself for something. Um, so then that would be, you know, or, or the beginning of class, like maybe I would do some sensory feedback methods instead of the somatics, like a foam roller or, um, you know, a, a massage ball. Then in the th- uh, after the preparatory exercise part of the class... Um, which would involve, you know, investigating those directions of movement at those joints um, in all different ways. So, you know, pushing, pulling, you know, whether we're doing stretchy bands or we're doing like a partner blanket tug of war or Mm -hmm. blanket sliding things, Um, you know, closed chain versus open chain, changing relationship to gravity, Um, but still all around like that one movement skill um, or shape, uh, and then, and then, you know, kind of putting it all together so that whatever I always say, you know, you don't really need to ask me for a modification because the thing we did just prior mm-hmm. is your modification. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. You know, if you can't remember it, no worries. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it. But, um, you know, and, and even still that doesn't always work because they're, you know, one regression doesn't work for, for everybody, but maybe two regressions ago mm-hmm. works. Yeah. So Great. that's kind of, you know, the, the best way I've found for, for group classes, um, other than, you know, making sure the place where you teach, if you teach a beginner class, isn't sending you advanced people. And if you teach an advanced class, they're not sending you, Well, which happens <laughs> Yeah, most classes are, you know, people just go to the class that's at the time um, and day of the week that works for their schedule. Mm -hmm. And it's, they're mostly open level. Anything (laughs) else you want to add before we finish? If there's one takeaways you'd like listeners to leave with today, what would that be? Um, I, well, maybe, you know, just because we talked so much about private lessons is, um, yeah, kind of just valuing your body knowledge, um, as an individual, um, rather than just as a, as one person in a group of 25 enough to, even if you only took private lessons, maybe once a month, um, it doesn't need to be once a week or twice a week. Um, you know, I find that a lot of people will take workshops, no problem, but they don't want to take a private. And so maybe the next time, you're going to take a workshop, maybe sit back for a moment as a teacher or as a student and be like, you know what, this thing that I'm so excited about to learn in the workshop, like maybe you still go to the workshop, but maybe you do a private with somebody that you know, or the teacher of that workshop so that you're getting, because the workshop is really just a more in detailed class with Mm -hmm. more time for more regressions and more variations. It's still not personalized. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, Great. take a private. I'll put all keep your info. Keep a yoga teacher, you know, able to support themselves, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'll put all your info in the show notes. And I strongly encourage people to go check your Instagram to have ideas of how to be creative and how to play with those variability and everything we talked about. But in the meantime, where's the best place for people to find you if they want to take your courses or they want to uh, study with you in some way or <clears throat> they just want to ask another question that, I forgot and it was essential. No, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so the first thing I would say is most, because most people aren't familiar with somatics, I created two free mini somatic inspired sequences. Um, and they're, they're easy to teach. They're easy to practice. They're gentle. Um, my students love them. And, um, they're also great if you're teaching remotely right now, cause they don't take up a lot of space or equipment. So if you just go to my website, which is trinaaltman.com, um, and enter your name and email, um, they'll be emailed directly to you, which great. will also put, put you on my newsletter. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's, that's it. And then if you're, you know, if you're a, a fan of Instagram or Facebook, I'm on both of those places and you can find links to that on my website as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. That was a really interesting episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you listen to help other people find it as well. And if you wanted to continue, you want to support me, don't forget, visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat, donate, or become a VIP member and get your hands on all our exclusive content. Check out the show notes to find more info about our guests of today, Trina Altman, or my top five biggest takeaways from this episode. Before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to Alexander Saba, working in the background, creating the music, editing, and mastering this podcast. Once again, thank you for joining in. Until next time.